0: Hello, God Speak Well, this is what one o'clock service looks like when there's a time change. People woke up like, all this extra time, I think I'll come to church early. But I want you to know in six months, when it goes early, this will be the heavy service. Everybody will want to sleep in and go, I've been robbed for one hour. Hey, we're reading through the Anchored series, reading through the Bible in two years. And uh, you want to make your way to 2 Timothy chapter 3 we'll be looking at verses 14 through 17 for our message Timothy's Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible today and you want a Bible, just raise your hand. Our servants teams are walking down the aisle with Bibles and they'll give one of those to you and you can check that out. So once again, find your way to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be picking it up in verse 14 for the message Timothy's Bible. Now, uh, I mentioned bringing these Bibles, and yet I've done something a little different. The New uh, Living Translation. I really like this passage of these verses in it, and so that's what I'll be looking at. So you're going to see feel something a little disjointed, but I think the illumination will be worth it. And I'm glad that you're flexible, since I have the microphone and you have no choice but to be flexible. But to look at this, and as we look at Timothy's Bible, you know, Charles Spurgeon said a Bible that's fallen apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And that's a famous old quote, but what does it mean? Check out this old Bible. It looks like my brother's Bible. And my brother, he actually dropped his Bible in the toilet, and uh, that's what happens when you get water damage right there. But he just keeps reading it, knocks it off, a little, little dry dried it out, no big deal. And, uh, but what about your Bible? Have you ever worn out a Bible? Have you ever worn out a cover on a Bible from actually reading it? Now I know in the digital age, maybe you're reading your Bible online, you're reading on your phone or your iPad or your laptop, your desktop, whatever it might be. But old school Bibles, you know, it's just my way about every 3 to 5 years i wear out a bible which means literally the cover just falls off and this cover would fall off but my daughter felt bad for me a couple of weeks ago and she shoe glued it on so right now the cover's holding on for shoe but with some shoe glue and she's like dad that's so sad But it's also a badge of honor. I have went through all these old Bibles, I mark them all up, and I had basically 20 years of Bibles that I had went through wearing them out every three to five years, and the covers fall off of them when you seriously read them. But what does that say? And I'm not saying, oh, kudos to me, I'm saying that anybody that gives themselves to God's word, your life is the one that's gonna be transformed. You're the one that's gonna be changed. But there's a young minister And he's really got some challenges in front of him. He's ministering at the church of Ephesus, which is a pretty brutal, tough place to minister. And Paul the apostle, his mentor, is sharing some very important things for his young life. We believe that Timothy at this place is like in his mid-30s. He's been go- walking with Paul for a long time. Paul is in prison. This is his last letter, Second Timothy. And he's already been delivered from the lion's mouth. We don't know if that's figurative or literally. Uh, he was uh, put in front of wild beasts because the Romans did this. But a couple of other quotes here just about God's Word. How do you think about it? How do you uh, process the power of God's Word in your life? And that's what this message is all about. Theodore Roosevelt said, A thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. I would agree. A fundamental belief in the Bible as the word of God written by men who were inspired, I study the Bible daily. Isaac Newton is considered really the father of modern science because of his discovery of gravity and his thesis upon that. Yet he was a devout Christian and believed that all energetic studies would always arrive at the same place of truth as God's word. Well, it's one thing if you're a president quoting, or a preacher like Charles Spurgeon, or a scientist like Isaac Newton. But what about the dark, hard experiences of life? Corey Ten Boom, who was a POW in World War II in Dachau, which was a prison camp of the uh, Adolf Hitler, and her sister died with her in that prison camp, it was really brutal. If you wanna know her story, it's, her book is called The Hiding Place. It's really a heroic story of the grace of God in Corrie's life. And she said, I've experienced his presence in the deepest, darkest hell that men can create. I have tested the promises of the Bible and believe me, you can count on them. In your darkest hour, God's word is a lamp into your feet, a light into your path. George Mueller said, God is the author of the Bible and only the truth it contains will lead people to true happiness. If your pursuit is happiness, it is a byproduct of a deep relationship with God. People that pursue happiness for happiness sake will always be eluded. It's elusive because happiness is the byproduct of a intimate relationship with God, and then as you seek his face, as you spend time with him, happiness becomes that byproduct. And that's what George Mueller is saying. In this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we'll stand just in a moment and read it, I want to share with you the exhortation that Paul gives to Timothy, which is continuation in God's word, where he had the initiation of God's word, the inspiration of God's word, and then the application let's stand up and let's read these verses starting in verse 14. As I said, we'll read it in the King James, but I'll be looking at it also in our notes in the New, uh, the Living Translation. What begins in verse 14, but you must continue in these things which you have learned and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, we ask. That your spirit would open our hearts, open our minds to see wonderful things in your word. Speak to us now, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to trust you and to take you at your word, believing your word to be inspired and delivered to us from heaven above. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First of all, we want to look at the continuation uh, of what you believe. Why is there so much pressure to give up good, sound Bible teaching? Why is there so much pressure for people to be moved away? Because we realize that we're really in a spiritual battle, correct? There's a spiritual battle for our souls. God is delivering us his word, which is truth, and the devil is coming with lies and deception to try to get you off course from the truth. He's constantly trying to trip you up, trying to trip me up, and it says here in verse 14, Paul talks to him about his Bible, if so to speak, and he says, but you must remain faithful to the things that you have been taught. You see, you've got all this great doctrine, Timothy, that I've taught you, and you know they are true. You have this witness inside of you that the word of God is true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. Now, it tells us in 1 Timothy chapter one, or excuse me, in 1 Timothy chapter uh chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, that his grandmother and his mother were the first to begin to download the scriptures and to read the scriptures. So his grandmother Lois uh, began to share the word of God with him. And then his mother began to share the word of God with him. So since he was a toddler, he has known God's word. He's cut his teeth in Sunday school, so to speak, at vacation Bible school. He's known the word of God all through his youth. And there's something about planting seeds in young hearts, in children's hearts, as they grow in faith. Because there's this childlike faith that is developed in your youth. And Paul is pointing him back to that. And he says, I want you to continue in the things you've learned. I want you to continue. I know that you believe God's word. And I want you to continue because you can trust not only your grandmother and your mother and myself as an apostle, you've seen the transforming work of God's word. God's word has changed your life, has changed my life. It shouldn't surprise us that from the time the Lord spoke, to Adam and Eve, the first two chapters of Genesis, chapter one and two, that the devil shows up in chapter three. And the first thing he realizes he must, must, must do in this spiritual attack is to cast doubt on God's word. You've got to make people question this book because as soon as I can get you to question this book, I've already got you halfway to where I want you. How many of you have been persuaded by someone, something, some message, some person, some preacher, some good friend, whisperings in your own mind that you cannot trust the authenticity, the authority, the inerrancy, and the power of this book? What books have you read what messages have you heard? What friends have pushed against you? What person's religious background that's from another culture began to push on you and made you begin to doubt all those things so that you wanted to move into this pluralistic smorgasbord of spirituality and hang on to your Jesus and then add everything else together with it? The tempter came to Eve and he said these three things. He said, did God really say did God really say that that if you eat of this fruit you'll die so he casts doubt like I, I don't think you can trust God secondly he says you, he flat out lies first he casts a question mark then he says you shall not die now we know they're going to die spiritually and physically but he lies to Eve and says you won't die God knows that your eyes will be opened. You see, God's actually holding back on you. There's some sinful experience that you could press into that would give you illumination and wisdom and a greater experience than you're having currently as you're obedient to God's word. It's holding you back from what is best for you. These deceptions that play upon our hearts. And then he says, lastly, you will be like God. What is man's pride? Like, I want to be like God. I want all the pleasure that life offers to me. And God must be holding me back. Actually, you know, I don't think I can trust this book. I think I better start pursuing what I really want to do. What I really want to pursue. And actually, God in his word is holding me back. And he casts doubt that you can't trust God's word and that God doesn't have your best in mind. And somehow he's holding out on you and the rest of the world out there, he basically downloads a big dose of FOMO into your life. Fear of missing out. Fearing of missing out on the ultimate in life. So Satan comes along and says, hey, you know what? Forget everything that God has said. I got some good stuff for you. And it's gonna be great. But as soon as they took the bait, they were naked, ashamed, and guilty, and hiding from each other, and hiding from God. And that is always the results of sin. And they ultimately, first they spiritually die, then they physically die. So, it shouldn't surprise us if he's going to attack the very method by which faith is born and grows. How does faith come into your life? Tells us in Romans 2. 1017, the method is faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. When I hear the truth of God and then the spirit brings it to my heart and when I believe that message, that's where faith is born. And then that's how faith grows and that's how faith is fueled by God's word. The more I believe God's promises. So the devil, once again, he has to nip it in the bud. He has to chop it off at the roots because he's got to attack the word of God. So if the method is faith... In hearing God's word, he must cast doubt on God's word. Genesis 3, or as we see in Romans 10, 17. So the very first weapon in the spiritual battle that Paul the Apostle tells us about when we put on the whole armor in Ephesians 6, 14 is having girded your waist with what? Truth. Truth. The word of God is truth. Because the very first thing, the thing that'll, the belt that'll hold my britches up, so to speak, is Truth. God's word. My grandma was a a fiery, uh, fiery Christian. She was an Irish Okie, which is a really strange, bizarre combination. And she had all these funny little sayings and she had this really strong Oklahoma accent. She's this hillbilly that loved Jesus. And when we would play cards as little kids, she taught us the game of rummy. So if you've ever played Rummy, you know, you get too many cards in your hand, and then if somebody goes out, then you're, you're caught with all your cards and, and you lose. And so my grandma, she, she would lean forward, she'd look at you like this, she had these big, thick glasses, and she'd say, now nah, don't get caught with your bitches pulled down. <laughs> so if you got caught with your, your handful of cards, it was like you got caught with your britches pulled down. But the reality is, is that, A belt of truth is to be the first implement, I cannot be successful in this life if I am not oriented towards truth. And the definition of truth is reality. What's real from God's perspective? Reality. Christians that know God's word and believe God's word to be true are the most rooted in reality, the physical world and the spiritual world, of any person on the planet, even though we're called delusional we're called these crazy people, these Bible thumpers, I mean, all the insults that come our direction. The thing is, is our worldview declares how we got here, what we're doing here and where we're going. God created us. He created us for fellowship. And we're going to go back to be with him in heaven in the future. So this reality changes you and I, and these are the things that Paul the Apostle is trying to exhort Timothy to hang on to, to continue in. Even in this room right now, there are some who have known these things, but you begin to slowly drift, and you begin to compromise one little thing at a time through the years until at the end, you've basically given the store away with truth that you're hanging on to. Well, the initiation that took place was very early. In verse 15, it says, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood and they have given you the the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. The Holy Scriptures. Notice the terminology of reverence for God's word. God's word is not like any other books. Do you know that a 100 million Bibles a year are sold or given away? A hundred million Bibles a year. Every minute, 50 Bibles are sold or given away to somebody. I was with a guy last week, and uh, he's, I led him to Christ. He's a pretty young Christian. He's been walking with the Lord about eight years. And uh, I've given him, a, he's, he's, he's a classic overachiever where he just studies God's word like crazy. I give him all these tools and resources, and he does it. And he said, I'm just starting through the New Testament on my eighth time, reading through. And he said, he's been writing his own commentary on it. And he said, it's weird. He said, it's like no other book. I'm reading through it the eighth time. And it's like, I've never read it before in my life. You have that experience? Because the Bible says it's alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Now I asked him, I said, now, if you read a novel eight times, would you feel that way? He goes, absolutely not. I read a novel and I never read one again because I know everything in it, right? I know it. God's word's not like that. He's going through it the eighth time. And it's just alive. Have you ever been, I've been walking with Jesus now for, uh, in four months, it'll be 40 years. So 39 years reading through God's word pretty much every year for the last 40 years. And as I read through, to this day, when I'm reading through, I'll read a verse and go, I could almost promise you I've never read this verse before in my life. You You ever done that? It's like, Because where I'm at right now needs that verse like no other time of my life. So things leap out of the page at the times I need them. God's word is alive and it's powerful and it's transforming. And these are the things that he's trying to encourage this 30-something-year-old who grew up in the church not to let go of. He said the initiation of your faith. You've trusted Jesus. You have the wisdom to receive salvation. Then we go on to Inspiration which is where the battle for the Bible really comes, the crux of the matter, so to speak, in verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. The Greek word here literally means it is God breathed. Do you know that my voice that you hear right now is the result of my breath? Those who study these things say it's the three L's. It is your lungs, it is your larynx, and it is your lips. Meaning the complexity, if you study this, the components of human language is awe-inspiring. It truly is, if you, like, want to lean into it. But the, the lungs are pushing air against my diaphragm that's pushing the air across my larynx. And the vibrations of that, and as it comes through my palate, my upper palate, and how it comes out of my mouth, it's, it, the language is made. So all of God's word, from Genesis to Revelation, is God breathed. So how'd that take place? Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2.21, for prophecy never came by the will of man. Man didn't say, oh, I've got an idea for a book. (laughs) I've got an idea for a book, right? No, it says, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's why all the books, as they come through a man and the Holy Spirit inspires them, they all have their own styles because it comes through their personality and God talking to them. But in its original form, it is the inerrant, perfect message from God. So that kind of authority is mind-blowing. Now, there's a lot of things that you can go into if you want to talk about the authenticity of the scriptures. I could talk about internal evidence. I can talk about external evidence. We'll spend a little time on internal evidence, mainly from just Jesus' perspective. But what was Jesus' Bible? What did Jesus' Bible look like? What was Paul the Apostle's Bible looking like? But I could also go to external. The Bible is the most historically accurate ancient document in human history. The archaeology, you could fill up a museum with all of the biblical evidence from archaeology. Every time the archaeologist sticks his spade in the ground, he proves the Bible over and over and over again. Every time the critics come out and say, well, there was no real King David because we have no extra biblical evidence. And then they find this This inscription that talks about the house of David from the 8th century, from a battle that took place, and once again, the archaeologist declares, here's this piece of evidence from archaeology. We could look at science. The Bible doesn't claim to be a history book or a scientific book, but when it talks about scientific things, it speaks accurately of them. When Paul tells us, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11, that we, by faith, believe that the world that is seen was created by things that are invisible. Atoms are invisible. And when you understand how God put those things together, in, in Job and also in Ecclesiastes, they talk about the process of hydrology that, hey, these rivers flow, they flow into the ocean, yet the ocean's never full. And it talks about the wind that carries the, basically, that goes water goes into the ocean, the evaporation happens, the condensation in the clouds, it goes over the mountains, drops it in the form of snow and water, and it just continues this whole cycle. The scriptures declare it before science has ever figured that out. The scriptures declare, in Genesis chapter 1, at the creation, at every single time, this is basically an ancient, if you will, scientific term for DNA. It says, and this was born after its kind, after its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its DNA, according to its DNA, according to its DNA. The scriptures declare that we all came from one man and one woman. When the DNA, the largest DNA study in modern history, they analyzed 100,000 strands of DNA. This came out about six years ago. And they they could only do part of the helix because the study was so massive with so much data. And when they crunched all the data to the chagrin of the scientists that were anti-God, <laughs> it says, we all came from one man and one woman. And the Christians are over here twiddling and because we could have told you that. <laughs> but I know that you don't want to believe the Bible and, oh, the Bible doesn't know anything. Really? Is that your perspective? Have you already been duped and pushed away from fundamental foundational truth of God's word? This is how it all starts. You've got to doubt God's word. But the application of God's word is so transformative, and this is one of those things. You not only have the unity of God's word, as I said, it's inspired by God. Do you know the Bible is one of those miracle books that this book, this book was written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period of time, all with one theme, the redemption of man. (laughs) The redemption of mankind. It has one hero of the book, which is Jesus the Savior, and one villain, Satan the deceiver, and one ultimate goal, all of this redemption, and the story of good versus evil, and the victory of Jesus over Satan's power, is the glory of God. Now, if there's more than 40 here today, if I gave 40 of us here an assignment, I want all of you to go write one chapter on a novel. And next week, we're going to come together, and we're not going to tell each other what the chapter's about. I mean, we're not going to tell each other what the theme of the book is. And it's going to just move together in perfect harmony, in sync, like it's a perfect piece to a puzzle. It's like if I had a 40-piece puzzle that when you brought every piece, it would fit together perfectly. That's the mystery of the unity of this book. It's mind-blowing. It's seriously mind-blowing, over a 1,500-year period of time. But once again, the skeptics, they got to do their work. They got to attack, 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 attack. That attack started in chapter 3 of Genesis with the voice of the devil. Has God really said, right? Has God really said, no, that's not what God said. Because as soon as I can get a question mark in your heart about God, Your sinful nature wants to already go its own way. We all, like sheep, have gone its own way, right? Every one of us have gone astray. We want to go astray. Give me an excuse to go astray, please. (laughs) Well, the application, he says in verse 16, and is useful. This is what God's word's useful for. To teach us what is true. Get that? To teach what is true. To make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what's right. Isn't that what God's word does? It teaches us the true. It shows us what is wrong. It corrects us to go from what is wrong to what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. This gives you the spiritual equipment to do all that God has for you in your life. When I grew up playing sports, we always had equipment day. Equipment day was a big deal in football right? Because equipment day, you get to pick, hopefully you get to put in your, your special request for your number, for your jersey. And if you have a favorite number, as I did, you want your favorite number for your basketball jersey, for your football jersey. And you go and you get your equipment. Football, you get a helmet, you got to make sure it fits right. And you get all of this equipment to play the game of football. But the Lord has equipment As you read through God's word, it equips you for all that God has for you and for me. Now, this may seem like a strange picture here, this next picture that came up. But on this day, here's a bull riding picture. It's not every day I put in the middle of a Bible story, right? Check out this bull riding picture. This is me at the age of 19. This bull's called Leroy. We're in John Day, Oregon. There's my brother screaming his head off at me to uh, make a good bull ride. This bull is spinning to the left. I was a bull rider. That's what I did. But on this specific trip, the reason I put it there was that it was an epic day of me falling in love with this book. I'd been a Christian for about five months, six months, and I'd been reading the Bible, but I'd been reading it a bit piecemeal. You know what I mean? You guys ever have those, (laughs) ah, and Judas went out and hung himself. Oh, that's not a good verse go do likewise. That's not a good verse. (laughs) I had not been looking at the Bible as a systematic message. It was a little bit of a mystery to me because I didn't get saved in church. I wasn't around Christians, but I had a Bible and I had been reading it. But on this specific day, going to this rodeo, we had a five-hour trip. So I was in the back seat. And when you're a rodeo cowboy, we'd go to two, three, four rodeos on a weekend, riding, you know, bull after bull after bull. And And so you were on the road a lot. So I was in the back seat, and I didn't have to drive on this specific trip because we usually traveled with four bull riders. And I just sat back there, and I just started in the New Testament, and I just started reading. And I just kept reading, and I just kept reading, and I kept reading, and I kept reading. And the more I read, there was this spiritual fullness that I began to experience that I had never experienced before. Towards the end, the road when we weren't for far from the little small town in Oregon where we were going to this it started getting really windy. And I wanted to keep reading, but I started getting carsick, you know, when you, you start. Uh, and, and so I stopped. But <laughs> I went behind the buck and shoots. And uh, you'll see bull riders will pray when they're going to get on a bull, and they've never prayed in their life <laughs> because they're now afraid of dying right? Which is a pretty good, you should be right with your maker when you're going to do this. I've watched the biggest heathens in the world on their knees, you know, they're praying, they're trying to get right with Jesus before they get on a bull. But for me, what happened on that day, and uh, I would have won the bull riding, Leroy bucked me off at seven seconds. But, but the, the thing is, is that that day for me was a day where I fell in love with God's word. I was 19. I've been saved five months, maybe maybe four months, and reading God's word, what it did to me in the spiritual insides as we see Paul the Apostle talking about the equipment that God's word does, I, I fell in love with God's word. I didn't have the words yet because I hadn't read it that the psalmist said, or he said that your words are like, they're like sweeter than honey. They're more valuable than precious gold. And I just began to read God's word with a, a voracious appetite And it all started on that day. You don't always have a picture, right, of the actual event on the way to this rodeo. I fell in love with my Bible. I had fallen in love with Jesus, but then I realized that this book is his love letter to me. And this love letter to me changes me. It changes me on the inside. It changes me in a way that other things cannot change me. Jesus said when he was tempted by the enemy that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So there's a nourishment that comes, a nourishment, a spiritual nourishment that you and I need more than just physical food. And when you learn to feed yourself daily upon this word, your life begins to change and my life began to change. I'm thinking about Paul the Apostle encouraging Timothy about his Bible, so to speak, and to hang on to the faith that he received. From his childhood and what it taught and then I realized what had happened in my life and then I wondered to myself how did Jesus look at his own Bible obviously he's the word become flesh but I've met people in this last few years who say they love Jesus but then they don't believe big chunks and parts of the Bible they don't believe them to be true and I'll ask them, well do you believe is Jesus your, oh yeah Jesus is my savior and then I'll ask him well do you believe that Jesus believed his Bible? And they, it's like a quizzical look goes across their face. It's like, uh, I haven't really thought about that. It's just, I, I love Jesus, but I'm not going to believe these crazy things in the Bible. It's like, well, did Jesus believe those crazy things? Why would you believe in a Savior that <laughs> believes these things if you want to dismiss them? So I really started thinking in my mind and processing over this last couple of years, what Jesus's Bible look like. Yes, he's the son of God. He's the word become flesh. He's actually the physical representation of all of God's message. But I started thinking to myself, it seems inconsistent for somebody to say they love the Savior, that they believe he died on the cross for them, he rose from the dead, he did all of these miracles, and yet they're willing to dismiss all of these different passages because somebody said, you can't trust the Bible, or... It, there's all kinds of errors, and I hear this mythology, and we know that Jesus lied and he's told all these fables. None of those things are true, folks. None of those things are true. If you believe them, you have believed hook, line, and sinker what Satan told Eve back in the day. Hath God said, you believed a lie? And so, truth and being oriented towards truth is so important. Think about this as we just spend, spend the, the rest of the time that we have here together. Hey, can I get the, the clock on my TV that's not up here on the screen? Um, what's that? Rick says I can take all the time that I want. All right, amen, thanks. <laughs> well, the, the brain can only receive as much as the seat can endure. That's my, uh, the preacher training, okay? What did Jesus' Bible look like? Was was the word of God authoritative to our Savior? Because if you say you believe in Jesus, you would want to believe in the Bible that he believed in, right? You would want to believe what Jesus believes, correct? So we see in Jesus' Bible, is authoritative. He says three times when Satan tempts him, Uh, one, two, three, in Matthew chapter four, he says each time, it is written, it is written again, away with you, Satan, for it is written. Do you know that Jesus and his apostles use that phrase, it is written, or it has been said, or a version of that language 92 times, almost 100 times, because the Bible for all of them, it is written. This is what God's word says. It's authoritative. That's what they point to. They don't point to their own experience. They don't point to, they point to prophecies and what the scriptures declare. It's authoritative. As a matter of fact, if you want to be ultimately authoritative, John 17:17 17, 17 says, sanctify them, it was the believers, set them apart by your truth. And what is truth? His word is truth. This book is true. Now, if it is filled with fables, if it is filled with half-truths, if it is filled with lies, if you can't trust it, this word is not truth. It is not truth. And it is not true. But if in fact, as I believe in the same Bible Jesus did, that your word is truth. I've not only experienced it personally, and I've watched it transform thousands of lives in my life. So the transforming power of this truth. Jesus' Bible is indestructible in Matthew 5.17. It says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. I didn't come to any way detract or damage or destroy this book. I came to fulfill all of its teachings. I'm not going to destroy this book. And yet today, modern Christians are destroying the book. Modern preachers are destroying the book. And by simply not declaring what it says or believing what it teaches, Jesus says in John 10 35, the scripture cannot be broken. You cannot destroy. You cannot, you, you can humanly, personally diminish it. But he says, heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my word are not, is not going to pass away. Jesus' Bible is literal. This is what we hear today. Well, you know, you don't really believe the Bible stories are literal, do you? Do you really believe in the story of Jonah and the whale and the parting of the Red Sea? Do you really believe in the long day of Joshua? Do you really believe Jesus walked on the water or that he fed people with uh, five loaves and two fish and he fed 4,000, 5,000 people? Do you, do you believe these things? Surely this is just some kind of window or metaphor which, which you can look through. No, Jesus' Bible is real people and real stories in a miraculous way. Jesus believed that God, in the beginning, created somebody called Adam and Eve. When I talk to somebody today, and I go, well, in the beginning, Adam and Eve, and they look at me kind of like, like this deer in the headlight, like, do you believe in this Sunday school fable? Like, I'm talking to them about Dr. Seuss. Honestly, right? So... I'm not put off by that, you guys, because I believe that unsaved people will respond to God's word in that way. What I'm shocked by is the Christians that look at me that way. That's what the shocker is. And I look at them and I, I, I just kind of step back and go, you don't believe in the creation story? You don't believe in Adam and... I'm like, do you believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? Yes. I'm like, well, that's a supernatural experience right? Nobody rises from the dead. Have, have you noticed? You seen any resurrections lately? The resurrection to conquer death is probably the greatest miracle that you and I are the most finally attuned to because it's going to happen in my life, right? If I know Jesus. So Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were real people. And when they talked to him about a question in Matthew 19:4, it says, he asked him that question. I just said that he said, it is written. It is written again. It has been said. What does he say here? Have you not read? <laughs> Are you not reading your Bible? That he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. He goes on to say that, and the two shall become one flesh, and what God has joined together, let not man separate. So think about that. Honestly, guys, did, did Jesus believe that Adam and Eve and the creation story? Absolutely. 100%. That's what he declared. What about Jonah? Did Jesus believe in this big fish story? This is the fish story of all fish stories, isn't it? What does Jesus say in Matthew 12, 40? As Jonah was three days and no, as Jonah in the Sunday school fable that I've told you about. No, he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the son of man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights and rise from the dead. This wicked and adulterous generation, the only sign, they're asking me for a sign, the only sign I'm going to give them is the same sign that Jonah gave them, which is he was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, and I'm going to be in the heart of the earth, or a tomb three days and three nights. Did Jonah believe Adam and Eve were real, literal people? Yes. Did Jesus in his Bible believe that Jonah was a real prophet? Yes. (laughs) I... People blow me away. Now, once again, I expect the world, an unsaved world, to be the unsaved world. I'm shocked by Christians that say they're born again that don't believe the truth of God's word. That's, that, that's the shocker, not the world. You guys know last year. Did you catch it last year? Maybe it was a year and a half ago. The guy that got swallowed by the big sperm whale. You guys remember? It was off the East Coast. And his friends were there and just, they were down scuba or whatever, and I think they were in Plankton or something, and this whale came and gobbled him up. I mean, that's, that's not your average fish story, right? This just happened. This is like, it showed the guy in the hospital and he's trying to tell a story about this big whale. How did God do it? What kind of special creature was this that he could be in there three days and three nights? I don't know. I don't think God gave him air conditioning, Right? Why is it that you can't believe the most audacious bold stories of the supernatural and yet you say Jesus is your savior? Don't you understand the incons- inconsistency of that? It's seriously inconsistent. If you don't believe in Jesus, I get it. Sure, I mean, if you don't, if you don't believe the Bible, you don't, I, I, I totally get it. This is what liberalism does to the The scriptures, the devil gets a foothold, he begins to cast doubt on God's word, and the church just slowly becomes more liberal, more liberal, more liberal, meaning simply that they don't believe, they don't believe, they don't believe, and pretty soon you have this powerless country club of people that are hanging out that like Jesus' teachings, but he's not really... The creator of all things is John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1 says that there is nothing that is made or created that was not made through him and that in him all things consist. Jesus is actually holding this whole universe together. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. If you don't believe the clear teaching of the Bible, I get it, I understand, okay. But don't claim to believe this book and then ignore the clear teaching of the book. Do you understand? Once again, consistency. So this is what almost happened in the 80s in the Southern Baptist Church. If you watch, the Southern Baptist is the largest evangelical denomination in America, okay? Back in the 80s, they started going down the liberal road. The Bible doesn't really teach this. The Bible doesn't really teach this. And the whole denomination of the president and the leadership began to veer into It's basically never, never land. Once you veer over there, pretty soon, what are the mainline churches doing? They're ordaining homosexual pastors, women, but just like all all down the list. Where's that come from? It starts at a departure point of believing that this is the literal inspired word of God. And that departure point, what happened is a group of conservative Christians that actually believed the book ended up getting in charge of the denomination, and they brought it back to a simple Bible-believing faith, and it has now survived the last 40 years, and now it's going back down that road because the leadership's not there. So you watch the Southern Baptist denomination, in 10 years, they will be ordaining Homosexuals, they'll be ordaining. When you, go down, when you go down this road, you just have to start castrating the Bible. You have to pull it apart. But to me, folks, I just have to share my heart with you. Either this is God's word or it's not. That's that simple. This is either God's word or it's not. So, Jesus, in his Bible, he believed in Adam and Eve, he believed in Jonah. Did he believe in Noah, Lot, and Lot's wife? Tells us in Luke 17, and as it was in the days of Noah, Jesus speaking. He's talking about literal days. As it was in the days of Lot. These are literal days. Was there a Sodom and Gomorrah that was burned with fire and brimstone? Jesus says yes. As a matter of fact, he warns us, says, remember Lot's wife. Because she started going back to Sodom, turned into a pillar of salt. Why would I remember Lot's wife? if she didn't have some prominence and she wasn't a real person. It's once, once again some kind of fairy tale or fable. Critics criticize all of these miraculous stories. They also critic, criticize the prophets because Daniel's prescient insight about prophetic future things is so astonishing to critics, they say there is no way he wrote that in advance. And yet, what does, Jesus, does Jesus believe Daniel was a prophet? In Matthew 24, 15, abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Jesus believed Daniel was a real prophet. But he also quotes, they believe that the prophecies of Isaiah, critics say that there's three different Isaiahs because there's no way they could prophetically announce the incredible prophecies that were there. And yet Jesus quotes from all three sections that you can break up the book of Isaiah, that they say there were three different Isaiahs. And Jesus quoted from all of them, giving ascribing the credit to one simple prophet. In Matthew 15, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people honor me with their lips and their heart is far from me. That's what happens now with lip service in churches of Christians that give lip service to Jesus and the Bible and actually don't believe the contents of it. Jesus' Bible was unmistakable. He says in Matthew 22, they ask him about a resurrection. The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. And he tells them this, which is what you can speak to anybody that doesn't believe the authority of the scriptures. This is what he said, you are mistaken. You're making a mistake. And what is that mistake? You don't know the scriptures. You do not know the word of God and you don't know the power of God because you are mistaken. You are making the biggest, fattest mistake of your entire life by throwing out, you don't know the word of God and then you don't know the power of God to accomplish these supernatural things that we believe to be true. He says, you just don't get it. You simply don't get it. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and well. They're with me in heaven. I'm a supernatural God. I have the power of God, know the scriptures, but you're making a big fat mistake. Jesus challenged them. Jesus' Bible is life because you see, when all these people were leaving because of Jesus' hard teaching, this is what I, the people that want to have this uh, really soft group hug, kumbaya group hug with Jesus. They don't, I mean, all you have to do is read his strong teachings and you would never get that impression from Jesus. Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. What he was talking about was basically the spiritual feeding upon his sacrifice, his burial, his resurrection, just as we did in a symbolic way here in communion. But people started leaving him because they actually thought he was teaching cannibalism. And so he looks at the 12, he goes, hey guys, you're gonna leave me too? Because everybody was leaving. Jesus knew how to thin a church down right he knew how to thin the church down he he knew how to preach it down to a manageable size everybody's leaving and he looked at the 12 apostles and he said you guys going to leave too and this is the words Jesus's words bring life and they had discovered that and I've discovered that and I pray that you've discovered that and this is what Peter said in an epic way Lord to whom shall we go where are we going to go where am I going to go now You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Where am I going to go, Jesus? Have you lived any life? Have you looked for happiness around the world? Have you discovered that if you pursue this, it comes up empty? You pursue that, it comes up empty? Let me tell you, most people are throttling through life at breakneck speed, only pursue emptiness after emptiness after emptiness after emptiness. And Peter said, Lord, we've, we've pursued that. We, we tried that. We, we ran after that. When we listen to your words, they're like life to our bodies. And we're not leaving you. I mean, you're, you alone have the words of eternal life. I, I don't know where else to go. I mean, Jesus has ruined me for this world. There's nothing out there that can make me satisfied. I've, I tried it all. And you owe it to me as your pastor. If you find something better than Jesus, please come tell me. Because I've been looking. I haven't found anything better than Jesus. And you owe it to me to share with me. If you find something, hey, I got to share with my pastor, I found something better than Jesus. What would that be? What would that be? (laughs) Then my sermon's over. Somebody set an alarm. (laughs) Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and pray that all of us have been saved by the bell. And I pray that your spirit and your love would break through our hearts. I pray for our hard hearts. I pray for our, our minds that would elevate in pride and arrogance our own thoughts above your thoughts, our own opinions above yourself. Description, your self-declaration. And I ask, Lord, that you would meet us in a special way. Lord, we're blown away that you would love us. But more than that, that you give us this incredible, life-changing book. And I realize the pressure that Timothy was under to begin to compromise. This book that was inspired and given to him and I realize the pressure that each of us are under to somehow compromise and, and to be ashamed. To be ashamed of you, Jesus. To be ashamed of your teaching. To be ashamed of, of what we believe. And why is that, Jesus? Because we're afraid of what people think more than what you think. Most of us truly, Lord, are just moving through life terrified of what others think and doing whatever we can to be the person that is loved by everybody rather than the person that is really just wanting to be salt and light and in love with you. And whatever people think of us because of that, Lord, I guess that's the way it is. But I pray that you would help us, Lord. I pray for my own soul, that you would help me. Lord, to trust you and your word, to trust the leading of your spirit, to not be ashamed of the gospel, not be ashamed of the truth of your word. I know it's unpopular. I know it, it's unpalatable for many. It's offensive. It's, it's all of these things, and yet Jesus, you, you are so bold in your word. You're so bold to declare it. So I pray, Jesus, you would give us that fearlessness, not only the faith, but the fearlessness to trust you, take you at your word, and live for you. So increase our love so that we can share the truth and love and increase our courage that we might have a voice, even when people, as you promised, Jesus, they hated me first, and if they hated me first, they're also gonna hate you. So it's no shocker when the world hates the message and the representation of Jesus in our lives. Help us be able to stand when that comes our direction. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.